Scripture reading this afternoon comes from 2 Chronicles, chapters 22 and 23. It's sort of a a standalone uh, Advent sermon that I've wanted to preach for some time. A beautiful passage about God's commitment to set his king on the throne. The same uh, thing which we just sang from Psalm 89b. His commitment to fulfill that promise of the Davidic covenant even amidst satanic Attacks and attempts to overthrow that plan. Second Chronicles 22. We'll begin reading at verse 10. All the way through the end of chapter 23. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being murdered, and put him and his nurse in a bedroom. So Jehoshabath, the daughter of King Jehoram, the wife of Jehoiada, the priest, for she was the sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah so that she did not kill him. And he was hidden with them in the house of God for six years while Athaliah reigned over the land. In the seventh year, Jehoiada strengthened himself and made a covenant with the captains of hundreds, Azariah, the son of Jehoram, Ishmael, the son of uh, Jehohanan, Azariah, the son of Obed, Maseah, the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat, the son of Zikri. And they went throughout Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah And the chief fathers of Israel, they came to Jerusalem. Then all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And he said to them, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said of the sons of David. This is what you shall do. One third of you entering on the Sabbath of the priests and the Levites shall be keeping watch over the doors One-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. All the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. But let no one come into the house of the Lord except the priests and those of the Levites who serve. They may go in, for they are holy, but all the people should keep watch of the Lord. And the Levites shall surround the king on all sides, Every man with his weapons in his hand, and whoever comes into the house, let him be put to death. You are to be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. So the Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and each man took his men who were to be on duty on the Sabbath with those who were going off duty on the Sabbath, for Jehoiada the priest had not dismissed the divisions. And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains of hundreds the spears and the large and small shields which had belonged to King David that were in the temple of God. Then he set all the people, every man with his weapon in hand, from the right side of the temple to the left side of the temple, along by the altar and by the temple, all around the king. And they brought out the king's son put the crown on him, gave him the testimony, and made him king. Then Jehoiada and his sons anointed him and said, Long live the king. Now when Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, she came to the people in the temple of the Lord. 
When she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, and the leaders and the trumpeters were by the king, and the people of the land were rejoicing and blowing trumpets, also the singers with musical instruments and those who led in praise. So Athaliah tore her clothes and said, Treason, treason. And Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains of hundreds who were set over the army and said to them, take her outside under guard and slay with the sword whoever follows her. For the priest had said, do not kill her in the house of the Lord. So they seized her and she went by way of the entrance of the horse gate into the king's house and they killed her there. Then Jehoiada made a covenant between himself, the people, and the king that they should be the Lord's people. And all the people went to the temple of Baal and tore it down. They broke in uh, in pieces its altars and images and killed Matan the priest of Baal before the altars. And Jehoiada appointed the oversight of the house of the Lord to the hand of the priests, the Levites, whom David had assigned in the house of the Lord to offer burnt offerings of the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, with rejoicing and with singing, as it was established by David. And he set the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord so that no one who was in any way unclean should enter. Then he took the captains of hundreds, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and brought the king down from the house of the Lord. And they went up through the upper gate to the king's house and set the king on the throne of the kingdom. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet for they had slain Athaliah with the sword. Beloved, as we look at this passage, it's a story that is perhaps not familiar to many of you, but in some ways it is a very familiar story, at least in, in terms of its general plot. Uh, boys and girls, many of you have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You know about that white witch, that uh, pretender queen under whom it was always winter and never Christmas, whose reign was one of death and groaning with no hope and no joy, yet by the end of the story is killed and the land enjoys peace as the rightful heirs are enthroned in fulfillment of an ancient prophecy. Now that story sounds a little bit like this story. This story of a queen who wants to silence any opposition to herself is an enemy of the true king who who sets herself up as queen even though she isn't and will eventually be killed so that an ancient prophecy might be fulfilled and the rightful heir be placed on the throne. And there's also how, like the white witch, she is an enemy of Christmas. A Christmas is about the birth of the Davidic king, and that ultimately is what she is seeking to prevent. She is seeking to wipe out the Davidic kingdom and all the promises that are attached to it, of a king from David's line who would rule in righteousness. She wants to run God's kingdom into the ground, and that she almost does. But even as this evil queen and daughter of Satan seeks to destroy the church and squash any hope of the incarnation, God preserves the child of promise. He preserves the Davidic line. 
So as we read from Isaiah chapter 11 in our call to worship, even when that line had become but a stump, God would bring from it a branch that would grow out of its roots. A king who would rule in righteousness and bring peace and and bring rest so that the wolf would dwell with the lamb, the lion eat straw like the ox, and, and the little child put its hand in the adder's den, and they not hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain. The kingdom of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. That's what we caught a little glimpse of in Isaiah chapter 11, and here we get a picture of it where even though the Davidic line is almost decimated by this evil queen, this wicked grandma, God raises up from the ashes a son, a root out of dry ground who would signal God's commitment to bring his son from this very line, who would bring about the peace and rest that we read of at the end of our passage, where the city was quiet, where they had slain Athaliah with the sword. Here in this passage, God preserves the promised child and gives his people rest. So look at me first at the satanic attack on the promised child, which we see in verses 10 and 12 of chapter 22. It says, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son, the king, was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal heirs of Judah. She kills all the little children who would be heirs to the throne, her own grandchildren. And in order to understand a little bit about why she would do this, I think it's helpful to understand a bit of Athaliah's background. She is the daughter of King Ahab. King Ahab who ruled not in in Judah, but in Israel. Remember, Ahab was married to that Sidonian princess, Jezebel. The Bible says that Ahab um, fathered uh, Athaliah, most likely by Jezebel, made an alliance with King Jehoshaphat of Judah so that his daughter, Athaliah, would marry King Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram. And so now in Judah, the king, Jehoram, is is married to a Baal-worshipping daughter of Jezebel who hates the Lord, hates his kingdom, and hates the Christ to come, who shows by her actions that she has Jezebel's blood in her veins as she destroys her own flesh and blood, her own grandchildren, because they threaten her power, and because they are part of the Davidic line. Like Jezebel, she hates the word of the Lord. She hates the line of promise and wants to wipe out any hope of the fulfillment of God's promise to David. And so when Jehoram dies, and then her son Ahaziah becomes king, and eventually Ahaziah dies, that's when Athaliah strikes. Ahaziah's sons, her own grandsons, would naturally be next in line for the throne. But instead of letting them assume that throne, she slaughters them. She does what Pharaoh tried to do in Exodus chapter 1. She does what Herod tried to do in in Matthew chapter 2 and seeks to kill all the babies who would threaten her power. This is a typical pattern. Power-hungry haters of the Lord seeking to wipe out the line of promise by doing violence against young children. It is the spirit of Antichrist. Dale Ralph Davis says we don't have to wait until 2 Thessalonians 2 or the book of Revelation. There are all sorts of Antichrists along the way. In the 9th century B.C., Antichrist was spelled A-T-H-A-L-I-A-H. 
in Athaliah, we see the spirit of Antichrist. We see this demonic attack on the Davidic line seeking to decimate it altogether. Can you imagine what sort of evil would would have to dwell in someone's heart to slaughter their own grandchildren? This is just how much she hates the promise of Christmas, the birth of a king from David's line. She would kill her own grandchildren to end that line. This is not just about a desire for power, though that's part of it, but a desire for power that is motivated by a satanic opposition to the Christ to come. This is Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent at enmity with the seed of the woman trying to prevent the birth of the child that was their promise. This is Revelation 12, the dragon trying to prevent the woman from giving birth to the child, trying to devour it. But God keeping that child safe in a place prepared by him. And that's what we'll see in our second point, the heroic preservation of the promised child. Before we get there, I want to just make two points of application. And first is with regard to our uh, participation in this kind of evil. I think we should take for granted the fact that, that it is a compromising entanglement with the world that, that leads to all of this taking place. It's through Jehoshaphat's foolish alliance with the house of Ahab that Athaliah is given opportunity to wipe these children out. It's through an arranged marriage with an unbeliever that the Davidic line is almost decimated. And so we see again a little reminder not to yoke ourselves to unbelievers, but to be separate. But second, we also see a reminder not to be shocked. Not to be shocked when when evil rulers and enemies of the gospel do wicked things. Athaliah is much like Pharaoh and, and much like Uh, Balak and much like Jezebel and Herod and and Nero, much like many of the evil rulers today and throughout history who have the blood of God's people and the blood of unborn children on their hands. Often our temptation is to think that ours is such a unique time, but passages like this show us that this is what we can expect because Genesis 3.15 tells us to. There will be enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The spirit of Antichrist will continue to rage against the church. But do not fear. For though the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain, the kings of the earth and queens set themselves against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. The God who sits in heaven laughs. And holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and say, I have set my king on my holy hill, Zion. Though you seek to destroy him, I will raise him up. That's what we see next. So we see the Lord doing in the next part of our passage, the heroic preservation of the promised child. We're in the midst of this bloodbath where the white witch of Sidonia hates her own flesh and blood because she knows they are descendants of David. God nevertheless preserves a remnant. A little root that will sprout from dry ground. A child who is hidden away from among the king's sons and put in a bedroom where he where is, is hidden away for six years until the Lord's appointed time. God will not let his promises fail, but preserves the child of promise. The Davidic son 
I was hidden away, not unlike Moses, through the shrewdness of a believing woman who trusts the promise of God. That's what happened with, with Moses' mother. That's, that's what happens here with Ahaziah's daughter. And don't miss that, that, that Jehoshaphat, who we meet in verse 11, is said to be the daughter of the king. Now, later in that verse, it, it specifies the daughter of King Jehoram, making her a sister of Ahaziah. We don't know if she's a direct daughter then of Athaliah or a stepdaughter from a different marriage, but note the irony. We're just like when Pharaoh's decree to kill all the Hebrew baby boys was thwarted by the compassion of his own daughter on young Moses. It is the compassion and shrewdness of someone from Athaliah's own house that thwarts her plan to wipe out the royal seed. God raises up an unsung hero from right under the nose of the villain who hates her mother for the sake of David's line. And actually, he raises up not just one, but, but two, and in fact, three heroes. We have Jehoshaphat, which she's called in 2 Kings 11, or Jehoshabath, as she's called here. We have her husband, Jehoiada, who we meet in chapter 23. And we have that unnamed nurse who is put in a bedroom with young Joash to care for him as he's hidden away from Athaliah. Not only does this sound like the story of Moses, but it also reminds us a little bit of the story of Jesus. Preserved from the wrath of Pharaoh by by the shrewdness of the Magi, by the angel of the Lord who, who warns Joseph in a dream to hide Christ away in Egypt until that angel would come and tell him otherwise. It's Matthew chapter 2. So we're seeing, seeing this, this pattern beginning in Exodus, continuing here and leading up to Christmas where God will preserve his son against the wrath of Antichrist, not allowing Satan to prevent the birth of the promised child. And in this passage here, the preservation of Joash is in fact what eventually allows for the, the preservation of Christ who would come from his line. Notice also it is that the shrewdness of unsung heroes Just like the Egyptian midwives or the mother of Moses or the daughter of Pharaoh, it is the shrewdness of these unsung heroes that saves the day. God, in the midst of this massacre, has his servants in place. Dale Ralph Davis says, wherever Antichrist is, Christ always has his faithful servants. Here, her name is Jehoshaphat, sister of Ahaziah, daughter of Jehoram, wife of Jehoiada the priest. The Lord's promise to David was one infant away from proving false and falling to the ground, but Jehoshaphat becomes the human agent responsible for preserving the kingdom of God on earth. If it weren't for her, there would be no Christmas. The Davidic line would have been broken. God's promise from 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 89 hung by a frazzled thread, but she kept it from snapping. God has his servants in place. Servants like Jehoshaphat, whose name you probably didn't even know before this afternoon. Servants like the unnamed nurse, whose name we still don't know. And servants like Jehoiada, that priest who will patiently and quietly wait for six years before the God-appointed time when this little boy will be revealed. The lesson here is that God doesn't need prominent people. 
He is perfectly content using unsung heroes like these three individuals. We shouldn't underestimate the, the significance of ordinary men and women who quietly and faithfully trust the Lord and do his will. These women trusted the promise of God that a king would sit on David's throne and acted faithfully in accordance with it. He has used the quiet faithfulness of women just like them throughout history to preserve and expand his kingdom. In the Old Testament, you think of of women like Ruth or Hannah who prepare the way for the coming king. In the New Testament, women like Phoebe, who carries the letter to the Romans, or Lois, the grandmother of Timothy. Throughout church history, countless mothers and Sunday school teachers, grandmas and sisters, widows in prayer, godly mentors of the church. Here we see a reminder of the value in God's sight and in God's kingdom of quiet faithfulness. We also see here something of the hiddenness of God's kingdom. Verse 12, it says, And the boy Joash was hidden with them in the house of God for six years, while Athaliah ruled over the land. In the midst of the visible reign of this illegitimate queen is the invisible reign of God's true king. David says, The usurper rules, but the chosen king secretly reigns unknown to Athaliah. The true king is there behind the scenes, and the pretender doesn't have a clue. Again, a little bit like Aslan in Narnia, or uh, Christ who has come into this world, whose kingdom, Matthew 13 says, is, is a hidden kingdom that is not yet revealed in all its glory. But its growth and its, its influence is imperceptible, like leaven spreading throughout the loaf. And so we see here a reminder that there is a vast difference between what appears to be the case and what really is the case. As it says in Psalm 2, though evil men appear to reign, God has set his king on Zion. We can know that there is a true king who is secretly reigning, which then keeps us from despair while evil rulers like Athaliah reign. We see here the hiddenness of God's kingdom. You see here the significance of ordinary men and women And do you see how as God works quietly through them, his kingdom is advancing even though the Athaliahs and white witches of this world do not see it? So take heart. Take heart and trust that even when God's kingdom appears to be a stump, God is able to bring forth a branch from dry ground. That's what we see him doing next as he exalts this promised child. That's what we see in chapter 23, where we see in verses 1 to 7 the plot of the priest Jehoiada, who patiently waits until the seventh year to, to, to bring forth this child. He's been hidden away for six years, and Jehoiada waits until the seventh year. And he, he carefully plans this counter coup where he makes a, a covenant with the chief military officers of Judah, who then bring all of the Levites and, and the chief leaders all throughout the land to Jerusalem, where verse 3, they make a covenant with the king in the house of God. Second Kings chapter 11 says that here he, he shows them the king's son, and they, they see in him this sign of the faithfulness of God in preserving a child. Jehoiada here quotes the Davidic covenant from Psalm 89 and 2 Samuel 7 and says, Behold, the king's son shall reign as the Lord has said 
of the sons of David. Behold, the king's son shall reign, as the Lord has said of the sons of David, even the way that it refers to him several times throughout as the king's son, suggesting his um, legitimacy as the heir of that Davidic promise, where it says, David, one of your sons shall reign. And so Jehoiada the priest quotes the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7 with confidence that the Lord will cause his king to reign. Even though the coup at this point has not yet been completed, he trusts the promise of God. Even though at this point in the story, um, from from all uh, outward um, estimations, the Davidic dynasty still appears to be doomed, this it has going for it, that God has made a promise to David. And Jehoiada clings to that promise. Again, one commentator says the Davidic dynasty here hangs by a thread, the promise of God. But it's enough because the weakness of God is stronger than men. And so because the Lord has made this promise, Jehoiada acts, not resigning himself to passivity because God has promised to do it, but but moving to action as the God-ordained means through which this promise will be kept. God uses human means. And here he uses the means not only of the the patient and careful planning of Jehoiada, but of the military leaders who are named in verse 1, the Levites in verse 2, the whole assembly of verse 3. Again, God has his unsung heroes in place. This work is not done by just one man, but by the church of God believing the promise of God against all odds. And so one-third of the priests um, entering into the temple on the Sabbath are to keep watch over the doors. One-third are to be at the king's house and one-third at the foundation gate. All of the people are to be in the courts of the house of God, the temple. It says only the priests are to enter in. Did you notice there is a concern throughout this passage that the Levitical requirements not be disregarded, that the that the holiness of worship be maintained? It says the Levites will then surround the king. It's interesting he's no longer here being called the king's son, but now he's, he's called the king. They will surround him with weapons in hand, putting to death anyone who would come into the house. Jehoiada says you are to be with the king when he comes in and when he comes out. You are to watch over Psalm 121, his going out and his coming in. It says that they do this with, with uh, the very spears and shields that had belonged to David. Little detail that I think signals the Davidic underpinning of this whole mission. And so, with those uh, spears and shields in hand, they, they escort the boy in verse 11. They put a crown on his head. They bring him before the people. They give him the law and they make him king. They anoint him and say, Long live the king. And so we see the plot in verses 1 to 7. We see the fulfillment of it in verses 8 through 11, where the king is escorted to the throne with swords and shields. And then we see the response in the last part of verse 11 through verse 13, where the people praise the king and rejoice and blow their trumpets, and the singers with musical instruments lead in praise. It appears they're beginning to have a worship service as this king is being crowned, a a worship service on the Sabbath as as this king is being carried to the the, the throne on the praises of Judah. 
showing us the utter importance of divine worship. In the middle of a coup, they are praising God. This is the appropriate response when God preserves the promised child from satanic opposition to bring him to the throne in fulfillment of his promise. This is why there's so much singing in those Advent texts in the New Testament, because God, preserving his king and raising him up, demands our praise, as it still does today. As we sing, hail to the Lord's anointed, great David's greater son, we sing, long live the king. We sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come, let earth receive her king. This is the appropriate response to God fulfilling his promise to David. It is promised to all of us. And so all of God's people join in praising the Lord. And it says the praise is so exuberant, so uh, joyful, so full of life that Athaliah hears the noise of the people running and praising God and celebrating the king that she comes into the temple and she tears her clothes and yells treason. Treason. Another favorite word of the white witch in Narnia, ironic, because she herself and Athaliah herself is the one who's committed treason. But nevertheless, the queen comes in and and tries to squash the worship of God and celebration of the true Davidic king whom she hates, her own grandson. But Jehoiada the priest has her brought out of the temple so as not to defile it. She is killed at the horse's gate. Here we see two very different responses to the raising up of God's king. In verses 11 to 13, we see the praises of Judah in response to what God has done. But with Athaliah in verses 13 to 15, we see anger in the face of God's people praising their rightful king. And so she's killed. And all who will not praise the king, all who set themselves up in opposition to him, likewise will share this same fate. Next, in verses 16 to 19, we see God renewing his covenant with his people. It says between uh, them and God, between them and the king, and, and even between them and Jehoiada, who will serve as something of a vice regent for this seven-year-old king. And after this covenant is made, where they're, they're reminded of, of their duties toward their king and also of the king's duties toward them. I think it's likely probably uh, Deuteronomy 17 is here read, perhaps 2 Samuel 7, reminding them of the Mosaic and, and Davidic covenants. As they are consecrated as the, the people of God in, in something of, of a new covenant, the, the very first act... The very first act that takes place as, as the reconsecrated covenant people of God under their true king is that they destroy Athaliah's idolatrous Baal temple and the priest in it. It's their very first act as the reconsecrated people of God. Hill Ralph Davis says, Covenant leads to destruction. If there will be faithfulness to Yahweh, then all attempts to sap and seduce that faithfulness must be thrown down. When truth reigns, the false must be eliminated. Which is why when we pray, thy kingdom come, we also pray for the destruction of every other kingdom, of every force that revolts against God and every conspiracy against his holy word. 
So that's the pattern that we see in the Psalms. The, the prayer for the expansion of God's kingdom is also a prayer for the destruction of the kingdom of Satan. God's covenant people go to war with the kingdom of darkness under their true king. And notice, again, they do it worshiping. Verse 18, according to the law of Moses and that which was appointed by David, they worship the Lord according to his word with rejoicing and singing. There is all throughout this passage an emphasis on the importance of divine worship according to the regulations of God's word with with the songs of David on their lips praising their king. Perhaps even the way that this is, this is situated right next to the people going war to bring about the destruction of the kingdom of darkness is, is a little reminder, a little hint that one of the ways in which we as the people of God go to war with the kingdom of darkness is by taking the Psalms of David on our lips and entering into the throne room of God and praying with the psalmist for the destruction of every other kingdom. That's what we see in this passage. And then the passage ends in verses 20 and 21 with the king taking the throne and all of the people rejoicing. And it says the land then enjoyed rest because Athaliah had been slain with the sword. It actually sounds a little bit like that refrain that you hear throughout the book of Judges where every time a new judge would be raised up and destroy the enemy, it says, and then the land and the people enjoyed rest for 40 years or 20 years or or 80 years. Again here, we see after Athaliah is slain and the true king is raised up, the land and the city are quiet because Athaliah had been slain with the sword. And not only does that remind us of, of what happens in the book of Judges, but again, it, it sounds a little bit like what happens in the Chronicles of Narnia. This, this peace that comes because the enemy is slain, and now, under their true king, the people enjoy rest. In fact, that's a theme throughout this passage, this theme of Sabbath rest, where not only are they said to experience quiet after she dies, But notice also how there is this Sabbath theme where it's on the seventh day of of the week. It's it's, uh, in the seventh year of Athaliah's reign that God enthrones his king and gives his people rest. God is bringing about something of a new Sabbath with this king who will rule a people at rest. Much as he does with his son, Jesus Christ, the king who, like Joash, is raised from the stump of Jesse, the Davidic line that had come to nothing. Even against the opposition of an antichrist, Athaliah-like figure who was hungry for power and hated God's word and hated the promise of Christ, nevertheless, against the opposition and hatred of King Herod in Matthew chapter 2, God preserved his son at all odds and raised him up to bring peace and Sabbath rest to his people and to slay our great enemy and restore the true worship of God. Love you to see how the story of Christmas is prefigured in this passage. Then if you look ahead to the next chapter, Now, 2 Chronicles 24 will make clear that Joash is not the final son of David. He is not the one who will bring true rest as after Jehoiada eventually dies, even though Joash had ruled in righteousness for for many years alongside Jehoiada. 2 Chronicles 24 tells us that after Jehoiada dies, Joash apostatizes. 
And he actually orders the killing of Zechariah the prophet, who is Jehoiada's son. You see this sad, sad fall, just as, as we do with, with Solomon or many others, a promising beginning, but a sad, sad fall. Making clear that Joash is not the one for whom God's people waited. But God's people still waited a king who would rule in righteousness forever. They still waited for one greater than Joash to come. And the good news of Christmas is that he has. And so like the people in verse 12 and verse 13, we praise him. We make a covenant to live faithfully before him, going to war against the kingdom of darkness, uh, singing the, the praises of God's king, and thanking the Lord for keeping his promise to David. Let's come to him in prayer now and do just that. Father, we thank you for what you have done in preserving the life of your son against the satanic opposition of, of Herod. But even many years earlier, the satanic opposition of Athaliah who sought to slay the Christ who was in Joash's loins. Lord, we thank you for the heroic and quiet faithfulness of Jehoiada and Jehoshaphat, that unnamed nurse, We pray that you would help us to be faithful like them, to trust even in dark days that you will fulfill your word, even when kings and rulers rage against you, to to remember that your invisible kingdom continues to advance. And your king, the branch who has sprouted from dry ground, will indeed speak peace to the people so that one day they will not hurt or destroy in all his holy mountain. Lord, how we thank you for Christ. We pray that you would help us now to worship him according to your word in response to what you have done. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.